Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favorite true crime podcast, British Murders of course? I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes, as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into, and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders. I am your host Stuart Blues and this is a off-season collab episode with my good friend Lorraine Purden, formerly of Once Upon a Nightmare. Been on the show a few times. If I check my website, it'll tell me. Yeah, a few times. Here's why this episode's happening. Two reasons. Well, yeah, two reasons. The first is it's the end of a season, so it's the perfect chance to do something a little bit different just to keep the interest there. But the main reason is I've just come back from CrimeCon. I'm knackered and I've not got a chance to begin writing my special, which is going to be on Peter Sutcliffe. It's not exactly an episode I can just whip out in a day. This is going to be a two-parter. So Lorraine's doing me a solid and coming on and doing what Bobby normally does. Lorraine got there first. Bobby's on holiday or something. Oh, sorry. Second best here. Second best. Well, you answered first. so You would have taken Bobby over me. <laughs> Well, the amount of shit I get for having Bobby on, someone told me I should fire her. Maybe it's a good thing that I've got you. Oh, don't worry. They'll say it about me after, so don't worry. Probably. So Lorraine's coming on, doing me a solid. So this is going to be not a British murder, but it's still a murder, and it's a brutal one, I've been told. Not a murder. It's not a murder. Oh, yeah, we had this chat, didn't we? So it's not British, and it's not a murder. So it's... uh, (laughs) Fits in well on British murders, but you wouldn't have any content this week if this wasn't happening. And I'm always conscious to have at least some content every week. The option is there to obviously skip it, but I prefer it if you didn't, because I'm sure it'll be a great episode and I'm looking forward to it. Over to you. 
I don't think you're, no, I know it's not a murder. And as soon as I um, suggested it to you, I knew that you were going to come back and go, um, it's not a murder, but I think it's such a fascinating story. And like the woman in question is just amazing. So that's why I thought I'd tell it. And it's something a bit different. So it's a attempted murder, although I don't know how she survived. So I'm going to be telling the story of, uh, it comes from South Africa. And it's a woman called Alison Botha, and she's from Port Elizabeth, South Africa. So I got some facts because I know Stuart loves some facts and he texts me saying, make sure you get some facts. So here we go. Fact number one, Port Elizabeth area was the first visited by the Portuguese in 1482. For a hundred years, it remained in the hands of the Portuguese. I didn't know that. As a vital port for outbound ships on the Cape route to India. For all you sports fans out there, uh, the oldest bowling green in South Africa is in Port Elizabeth, and it's also the home to South Africa's oldest cricket club. There's some uh, interesting facts. Not like either of those sports. Me neither, but I thought I'd throw it in there for all your listeners that uh, do. It's uh, nicknamed... You know my audience. (laughs) (laughs) They love cricket and bowling. What are you talking about? Cricket and bowls. Absolutely love it. What do you think they're listening to now as they do those two things? Your podcast. Hopefully. The city is nicknamed PE by South Africans and is also known as the Friendly City, the Windy City and the 10 Minute City. It also has an amazing 40 kilometer of unspoiled coastline that is predominantly made up of incredible beaches and soft, warm sand and water. And one that is very fitting with this episode, it is also home to serial killer Stuart Wilkin, also known as the Boaty Bower. Between 1990 and 1997, he would murder sex workers and young boys. People kind of find him fascinated because such different groups. And he also killed his daughter. He was arrested in 1997 and is now serving life in prison. So yeah, they're my uh, five fun facts that took me about five minutes to search the internet for. I was very lazy. Yeah, same amount of time it takes me. Okay, good, good. So this episode, as we said, is about Alison Botha, who survived a brutal attack on December 18th, 1994, and she was only 27 years old. She was abducted by two men in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. A little bit about her. She was born on September 22nd, 1967 in Port Elizabeth. And she grew up with her mother, Claire, father, Brian, and elder brother, Neil. Her parents were divorced when she was 10 and both children would live with their mother. She went off to do a course in secretary, to become a secretary and worked in the city for three years. She would leave South Africa for about four years to work in London. And she also traveled the world before returning home. So when she returned home, she was seeing friends. And on that night, she met with friends, her friend Kim and their sons, Devon and Jared, and they were having a great day, but they didn't want the night to end. So they decided to go back to Alison's flat with other friends, Richard and Phil. But Kim didn't want to go back unless she was going to get a lift home. So Alison said, come back and I promise I will give you a lift home uh, at the end of the night. She did that. And on the way back, she couldn't get a parking spot outside of her house. So she had to go and look for one. It was apparently a really bad place to try and get parking. It was very dark. She parked under a tree. Visibility was really poor, but she parked there anyway. And before she could get out of her car, a young, blonde, scrawny man appeared at her car door, brandishing a knife. He pressed the cold blade to her neck, forcing her to move over in her seat and stating that he would kill her if she didn't comply. 
So as they pulled away, Alison, she was kind of wrestling whether to make her run for it or not, but she didn't feel like she could take that chance. So he made conversation with her and it became apparent that he had been watching her because he was able to tell her what number house she lived in, asking her that question. This made Alison wonder why she'd never seen him because obviously he'd been lurking about. And he then asked her what her name was. She said it was Susan. She lied. And he said his name was Clinton, which we will find out is a lie too. Up until this stage, the abductor told her he just wanted her car. He only said this to her because he didn't want to set her off. After a few back and forth questions, Alison did ask to be let out of the car and he refused, saying he wanted company as he was looking for a friend who had stolen his TV. After his refusal to let her go, Alison thought she saw her chance of escaping because she saw a police van, but he spotted the van too and sped off. As they carried on, the abductor started to become irritated as they drove on. They soon reached a busy spot there where there were lots of people and he slowed down and he was muttering, where the fuck is he? He was looking for a friend. He couldn't see him, became more irritated. He then drove out around the crowd and then he spotted him. A short young man dressed in black approached the car. His name was, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing this wrong, Theans. The abductor pulled his seat forward and the other man got in the back of the car. As she looked in the rear mirror, she could see the man looking at her and she would describe him as dead in the eyes. And at that moment, she knew she wasn't going to be going home. The two men spoke for a bit before heading off into the darkness out of the city with no cars in sight. Alison would keep her eyes on the road ahead. The car was silent apart from the sound of the engine and people smoking. As the journey went on, Alison was unable to keep her thoughts at bay as she wanted to know what was going to happen to her. And that was kind of the unbearing bit because she didn't know what was going to happen. And they soon turned onto a beach because she could feel the tires on the sand. The cars came to a stop. Theans got out the back and Alison asked Clinton in silence, you know, they, as they were sat in silence, she said, what now? And he replied, but I thought you would realize we want sex. No, replied Alison. Alison was almost a bit annoyed at herself for not thinking this was on the cards, but she began to brace herself for what was about to happen. And she could see things over in the distance. It was here that Clinton asked, are you going to fight? Alison said she wouldn't. She thought up until this stage that there had been no indication they intended to hurt her. So she thought if she had sex with them, they would just leave her be and that would be it. She was ordered to take her clothes off and perform oral sex on Clinton. And he then did the same to her, asking her, does her boyfriend do that to her and various other vulgar things. Alison said that she spoke of the violation and how him doing things to her revolted her. He tried to kiss her as he stunk of nicotine and then he began to rape her. And this kind of was very strange for her because her body was prepared for it. And she felt that her body was betraying her. But she later found out that apparently that is a natural thing. I didn't know that. That um, if you're about to be raped, apparently your body can be prepared for it. I don't want to get too crass with the details. But yeah. Can you just, I think I know what you mean. So basically, it sounds like. She was as ready for it as she would be if it was consensual. Yeah, it kind of, okay. yeah, as in. Yeah, leave it there. Okay. Yeah, okay. So obviously. Like I've, you've even heard of females having orgasms while being raped. So, which is obviously a very confusing thing to happen because people will assume you got off on it, but you don't. So maybe it's kind of like a survival thing where your body's like, just let this happen. And hopefully nothing too bad will happen to you physically, you know? Anyway, Finns then called out to Clinton, but he said the name Franz. 
So she obviously realized that Clinton wasn't his real name, and she now had both names of her abductors. So once Franz was done with Alison, he asked Theans, which is a very strange way of putting it, do you want to have sex with this lovely lady? Theans replied, no, I just want to fuck the bitch. Franz told him that he should not speak to her like that because she is a lady. And that's what she found very, yeah, I can see by your face. She found that very bizarre because it was like he was defending her honor or something, you know, you know, she's a lady, let's be nice to her after what he just had done. So he began then to rape Alison and he stopped himself. He said he couldn't do it. So she kind of sat there alone and naked and Franz began to doze off. And then this is when she saw something terrifying, which was the knife. So Theons was sat on the bonnet of a car. Now she had been taken with a knife to her throat, but the knife that Theons had was apparently a lot bigger. It was a hunting knife. And she began to get dressed because nothing was happening. She saw her clothes there. So she kind of started to get dressed, but Theons started to become restless. And Franz kind of came too. So they decided what they were going to do with her. They ordered her to undress again. They took her jewelry. She kind of thought at this stage, they've got what they wanted. They're just going to leave, leave her be and drive off with her car and all this and her jewelry. But she did manage to keep her sandals on without them noticing. And they were kind of taunting, are we going to kill you? Are we not? It was like she said, some really kind of cruel mind game. And then from out of nowhere, Franz jumped on top of Alison and started trying to choke her. She says he had like this empty look in his face and she was like asking them not to kill her. And he replied, sorry, for some reason. Alison then said she felt her bowels move, which of course she found this embarrassing. And then she blacked out. Now, what happens after here is really graphic. So just prepare everyone. She's then stabbed in her abdomen and her pubic area around 37 times. Her throat was cut. This was done by Theon and then Franz pushed him out the way to continue the attack by slashing her and cutting her in her throat a further 17 times. After this vicious attack, she did come to and she saw them leaving. They obviously assumed that she was dead or was going to die. She kind of describes this out of body experience where she's like seeing herself looking down and then all of a sudden she's like, hang on a second, you know, I want to survive this. And she comes to, she does still think she's going to die, but she lies there and she decides to write their names, Franz and Theans, in the sand, because she said, if the police find her, then there's two names. And she also wrote, I love mom. As it went on, she started to feel a wet sensation outside of her body, which turned out to be her intestines. They were now outside of her body on the sand. They had thrown her clothes out of the car. So she managed to grab her jacket and kind of scoop up her intestines into the jacket. She then started to crawl along the sand to try and make her way to the road. She realized like this isn't happening and she went to stand up. But as she went to stand up, her head fell backwards because it had been so cut that it was flopping about and that had been quite practically severed from her. So she she was still alive after this. So she's walking along, holding her head in place, her intestines in the, the coat. She makes it to the road and she collapses. The story will continue after these quick messages. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. Now, as she's lying there, a car does approach and she's kind of thinking to herself, is this then back? But at this stage, she's like, what more can I do? A car did slow down, but they carried on going. And then another car came along and they did stop. And it was this young man called Tian Elliard. He got out with a group of his friends. This guy was studying to be a veterinarian and he was on holiday with all his friends. So he saw this, pulled over and went to help Alison, just grabbed her hand, took off his shirt to help cover her up and hold anything he could together, telling her she had nice eyes and just trying to calm her down. They had a mobile phone, which obviously back in 1994 would have been quite uncommon then. And they called an ambulance. Now the ambulance took over 40 minutes to arrive and TM was getting very aggravated because they were kind of taking their time because they kind of were like, well, what's the point? She's not going to make it, which, you know, I kind of get them thinking she's not going to make it, but let's at least try. So she got to the hospital and the doctor on duty was a Dr. David Coman and another Dr. Angelo. And basically they speak about how they're men of science and they don't really believe in miracles. And they see this girl come in, her trachea has been cut. So she's kind of like breathing out of a hole just here. Her stomach is on the outside. They just basically don't know what they're going to do, kind of looking at all this. So Angelo, he basically gets her intestines out that's covered in glass and sand and dirt. And with his hands, he just cleans it. He's even got a scrubbing brush at one point trying to clean us all up because obviously they have to get that clean because if it goes back in, you know, infections and stuff like that. But despite all these stab wounds and this attack, they didn't actually hit any major major arteries or organs. So that's probably one of the things. I know, like, what, what are the odds? Had they, she would have just literally bled out. Two policemen would then arrive at the hospital and they gave her a folder of pictures of attackers. And she was able to write down the names, but they said that they would prefer if she said them. So she had a tube down her throat, unable to speak, and she just said, take it out. So they took it out. So she was able to, when they took it out, she said, that's wonderful. And then she says, my attackers were Franz and Theans. After this, she was just transferred to a general ward. And that Dr. Coman, if you watch him in the documentary, anyone that's in this documentary, they're proper teared up, like that you can see how much it impacted them because they talk about all the things they've seen as surgeons and doctors, and they've just never come across anything like so cruel. And this would be the last time he saw her while she was recovering and stuff. And she said she rarely slept. There was lots of pain. But despite all this, she would still do whatever the police wanted. So when she kind of started being able to move about herself, she was very much involved with this policeman who I think is now a detective called Melvin Humple. And he spoke, she would have to go in, she'd have to pull down her trousers, like show very private areas to be photographed by many different policemen. And she just never complained because she was like, I just want this done. 
She also speaks very highly of this Melbourne who unfortunately passed away in 2020, but anything you read about him, he's like super cop. Everybody loves him. So that was good. Now it turned out that she wasn't the first pe- uh, the first woman to be raped by these men. A woman had reported them and then a second woman who was pregnant had reported them and they both decided that because those two women weren't afraid of any threats that were made towards them, that the next woman they got, they would have to kill so that they wouldn't get reported. Thanks to Alison and what these other women have come forward and done, they did actually go and find and arrest these two men who turned out to be a Franz Dutois, who I think was about 27, and Thens Kruger, who I think was only about 19. Now, the thing was, Franz believed that Alison was dead. So he was very shocked when he was arrested to be told that he was being arrested for attempted murder by Melvin. Apparently this shut him right up. Then he just said, well, I might as well just tell you everything. Give it up because Alison's going to tell you. And then he pulled off this ring that was on his finger and gave it to the policeman because he's like, this is hers. So I personally, I'm not going to, I did this episode on Once Upon a Nightmare and I didn't go into the background of these two guys. And the reason being, because usually when we do these episodes, we give a little bit of, you know, background. It's because when the documentary came out, Franz was asked to participate and he had conditions to him participating. And it's because of these conditions, I was like, nah, you're not, you're not getting any of my time. Basically, he said, firstly, he would participate if Alison gave him a, a letter signed by her saying that she forgave him. Firstly, and secondly, which I thought this was beyond disgusting, that he thought that he deserved any money that she had made off the back of this. So Alison, after this, completely went in a different path on her life. She became a motivational speaker. She goes and helps people that have obviously, you know, had this type of traumatic experience. So she's made a big career for herself and she's made some earnings and he wanted, and books, I think as well. So he said that the reason that she is successful is because of him and he deserves pay and any back pay that she has made from this because without him, she wouldn't be there. She wouldn't have this amazing career. So I was like, fuck you. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So it just absolutely, I was fuming when I read that. France Dutois was sentenced to three life terms without parole on August 7th, 1995. And Theans Kruger was given a life term and 25 years with no parole. Apparently, Franz's father committed suicide a couple of years after this because he couldn't take what his son had done. Now, the judge involved in this was Chris Hansen, and he also commented on the sentence he gave them because he wanted to make sure that they never got out. Had he been given able to do the death penalty, he would have given them the death penalty. Even Officer Melvin Hume speaks of how he wouldn't handcuff Franz Dutois, apparently, because he wanted him to try and escape and the other fella so he could kill them, shoot them as he escaped. And he says, I've never been like that before, but these guys, everybody just basically wanted them dead. It's okay. He said he didn't want them to ever be freed. So this special thing is put into place. Apparently, there was a chance for them to come up as parole. But as far as I can see, they're still there. She was terrified they'd get parole because uh, she was worried about them coming out and obviously seeking revenge because they seem to think that she's the problem and not them. While Alison did go through a lot of depression, as you can imagine, she kind of made this decision with her life to not be angry 
to kind of take control back. She speaks about how there's lots of great men out there. And especially Tian, who didn't become a veterinarian. He became a doctor and they're still very close today. He even went on to deliver her second child. She was told, yeah, she was told after this that she would, as you can imagine, the area that was, you know, in her abdomen, she was told that kids are out of the question. She went on to have two with no IVF, nothing, just naturally have two. Did get married. It didn't last. But, you know, she has her two children. And yeah, so she's just gone on to have this amazing life that obviously she didn't plan. I'm sure she didn't want to go through what she did to get there. But she's just turned it like when you watch her in interviews, she's just like this amazing person. You can't see any scars on her neck. She says she still suffers from a lot of pain. I just think it's a really interesting case. It's kind of a bit like the Mary Vincent one who was attacked by Lawrence Singleton, a serial killer. So brutal, but somehow they managed to survive. When you watch everyone involved, it just affects everyone. So there is a a documentary of it on um, Amazon Prime. They do show a bit of kind of like the the, the attack in it, and it is quite brutal. Um, So just keep that in mind if you do go and watch it. I left my episode with this thought, and she just said, on the night of the attack, she may have wanted to die, but she got up because, and I quote, I was worth fighting for. And the reason I want to tell is because I just think it's a great story of someone who really shouldn't have made it. You know what's interesting about that is that's that's a brutal story. Uncomfortably brutal. Do you know what that highlights for me, which is important, that to me reinforces, and I'm not talking about Alison here or the case, I'm talking about podcasting here. Hmm. It's on my head because obviously I'm just off the back of crime con shameless plug. But that reaffirms stories like that and how I feel now as a listener mm. confirms how much we need to continue promoting, not promoting, but issuing content warnings. Yeah. And not begrudging people skipping certain episodes because that was fucking horrible. I skip certain, like I, I always have a look and see if it's a child when you're doing an episode or, you know, if I'm listening to a podcast with, that talk about kids, but this one, like I did this episode and then I was doing like, obviously I went over again for you because it was a couple of years ago when I did it and I, I texted you, didn't I? And I was like, oh God, I forgot about, I forgot about how dark it went. When you listen to the the doctors and stuff who deal with all sorts every day, like when they're grown men, like, cause obviously this was in the nineties the and it, you know, this, I think the documentary was a few years ago and they're, they're just welling up and they're having to look away from the camera and stuff like that because it just impacted them so much. But yeah, this is definitely, I mean, obviously you can put a big, massive uh, warning at the beginning as well, cause it's a bit late now, but I think I did say something. Some of the most graphic content I've ever had on this show. I know. Cause you don't do details. You don't go into d- big details. I didn't do detail details. Obviously, there's bits that were that you don't need to say. I don't think there's anything there that you should have left out. But what we're going to do from next week, now that I'm back and I'll have a few days rest so I can get back on the horse, as it were, (laughs) and start writing again, it's going to be a two-parter on the Yorkshire Ripper. Lorraine, thank you for your time. Yeah, I think I flew through that. It was in my time frame, I think. 15 to 30 I think minutes, it's fucking under. It? I looked at one point and I think it was like 2.13 I was like fucking hell it's going to be over in a few minutes he's not going to have a fuller oh well at least it's something it's quick short and snappy that's what we like here that's the 
length of our episodes and yeah. I hope you all enjoyed it. I can't plug Lorraine's pod because she doesn't do it anymore. Oh, you just have to keep listening to me. I have to come on again before Bobby. <laughs> yeah, please, if you're going to insult Lorraine, go to at once upon a nightmare. Don't leave me a one star review because of her story. Thank you. <laughs> I want I, I, I want the really shitty one that Bobby gets because I think they're funny. Well, leave it on your fucking podcast then. I know. But Bobby's amazing. Be nice to Bobby. Yeah, we love Bobby. Right, that'll wrap us up. Thank you for that. I hope you all enjoyed it and I'll see you next week. Bye.